Cora Laura La, you cruising bureaucrats. Welcome to episode 93 of the Blind Boy podcast. This uh, podcast keeps growing internationally, new listeners every fucking week. So if you're a new listener, feel free to investigate previous episodes. Um, sometimes I say to people, go back to the start. I've realised that some people have taken this completely literally and have, have, have gone straight back to the start and gone from episode one up until now. You don't have to do that. You can if you want. But I would suggest go back to some earlier episodes. Get a feel for the podcast. It's not chronological. You can listen to any podcast you want. They're all kind of... You know, they're separate. But don't start here is what I'd say. Go back and listen to some earlier episodes. So, um, how are you getting on, first of all? Hope you've been having a charming week. Hope you're minding yourself, looking after yourself. I'm, um, I don't know, I'm just in, I'm in a weird headspace. Because, as you know, like for the past six weeks, I've pretty much been saying to you, I'm really, really busy. And because of this... I'm not uh, relaxing as such. Every week I do like to touch on... I touch on mental health when I can every single week. I This week's podcast is a hot take podcast. I've got a nice big hot take for you. But, you know, I get a lot of DMs off you. got a lot of mails out of this. And the amount of people that say to me, you listen to this for just mental health stuff. I always try and touch on it each week. And how I do that is what you'd call appropriate self-disclosure. Within within psychology, it's called appropriate self-disclosure. It's where you, I speak a little bit about my own experience, what I'm going through, as honestly as humanly possible. And then ye listen to it, and through listening to my experience and through empathy, it might allow you to reflect then on what's going on for yourself so that's kind of the crack but this is this is a hot take episode i'm going to be getting to the hot take soon but i'd like to speak a little about a bit right now about stress and the nature of stress so that's kind of where i'm at you know it's healthy stress and healthy stress i consider is when you have actual reason to be stressing, when you have actual deadlines or projects or not a lot of free time, then that is healthy stress. So I'm dealing with the healthy stress. Now the thing with healthy stress is there really should be a time limit on it. Like you've got healthy and unhealthy stress. So unhealthy stress for me is when the source of stress is emotional if you're stressed out because of worry worrying about things that have already happened or worrying about things that have not happened yet and as a result of this you're quite unhappy and stressed that's unhealthy stress because the it that's fundamentally based in a position of irrationality and healthy stress is when your actual lived reality is simply busy and a source of stress. So that's where I'm at right now. 
So I can, I'm dealing with it. But what I would say with people, with people who have healthy stress, which is you're actually under stress. If it goes on too long, then you have to keep an eye on it because stress is no crack. Um, st- it's a weird word. Stress. Stress is. It's a conglomeration of a number of things. So healthy stress would be, you know, uh, a healthy level of. It's the unhealthy and unhealthy, unhealthy and healthy emotions. So in my day to day life now, I'm experiencing healthy anxiety. What is healthy anxiety? When, healthy anxiety is when I am fearful or anxious because of a, something that's actually happening. Whether that be, you know, trying to reach a deadline or something going wrong when it should go right. So that's healthy anxiety. Then I'd be experiencing healthy anger. What's healthy anger? When I am angry as a rational response to something that has caused me anger. What's unhealthy anxiety when I'm experiencing anxiety because of a, a, an emotional reaction, because of a faulty perception of something that is or isn't happening. Do you get me? But with healthy stress, you got to put a fucking limit on it where possible. So I w- I have a natural limit coming up. I'm at the... Like, I was in London at the weekend doing the final voiceover for my BBC series. So, the BBC thing is 99.99% done. So, that's one project now that I don't have to worry about. I'm going to have to do one or two little pickups, that's fine, but that's a project now that's done. My book that I'm writing, final stage is still ongoing, but I would imagine, hopefully, by August... I will no longer be in healthy stress territory and I will be back to I no longer have a source of extreme stress in my life. If you're in a fucking job where it's healthy stress all the time and that healthy stress eventually leads to unhealthy stress because the thing with stress when you're stressed your body releases stress hormones Chemicals like, um, could be talking out of my hoop here now, but I think one of them is called cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And it does things to your body similar to what unhealthy anxiety does. So if you're stressed for a long period of time, you might ex- you'll experience that as, um, you know, it might make your stomach uneasy because a stressed person you know, the cortisol goes into the stomach and it says, you know, don't di- don't di- digest properly because the stress is telling you that you need to either fight or run or freeze. Our stress can manifest itself as snap, being snappy with people or not having self-compassion and all of this, you know. So if you're in a job where you can't escape rational and healthy stress, and I would suggest you have a possibly look at your fucking options if you can I'm lucky I'm in the position whereby I get stressful projects that last a p- 
period of time. So my stress for projects last six months and then they're over and then I'll have a break before the next one comes on. But some people are just in a job where it's just stress all the time. And the cause of your anger or your anxiety is actually a healthy response to whatever's literally going on in your life. So for those people, I feel for you. I fucking feel for you. That's tough going. And I'm sure there's many, many people. I mean, what are you doing actually? Yeah. I mean, in those situations, I don't want to be so privileged as to say, oh, just fucking leave your job. A lot of people can't do that. But if you have a job, you're lucky. A lot of people are lucky to have jobs. I suppose it's about managing the healthy stress to make sure it doesn't leak over into unhealthy stress. Keep the work in the workplace. Find space in your day for empathy and self-compassion. The thing about stress is it can can make you very self-centered because you're focused very much on the problems that affect you only. And then you can forget empathy. You can forget compassion. And like I said before, there's no self-compassion. You can't have compassion for yourself if you're not similarly extending compassion for other people, for fucking animals. I mean, that's why animals are classed for stress, you know. Rub a cat, rub a dog. You get a little moment there of relief, release from whatever's pissing you off. But just ring up a friend. Call a friend. Be be nice to someone. For me, what I try and do is... If I'm speaking to someone I care about... I try and, I, I try and check myself. When you're, when you're in a position where you're busy or stressed... And you speak to another human... The tendency can be... To use that other person... As a sounding board for your own stress. So, a family member or a friend rings you up on the phone or they stop you on the fucking side of the street and then you go, brilliant, I can tell this person about how busy I am. And you're just talking at them. Then you walk away from that conversation. At no point are you emotionally or physically present in it. Just shouting complaints at someone. It's no crack for them. And you leave and it eventually begins to affect relationships. So what I try and do and check in at myself is if I meet another human or I get on a phone to another human, I will try to check in at myself and go, I'm not telling them what's bothering me now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try and ask them, how are you? And listen to what's going on for them and try and use empathy to feel, uh, to emotionally put myself into their shoes. And there's a great catharsis in that. When you do that and try and experience someone else's, what's going on for them, your stress level drops. You're in the present moment, you're in the here and now. You're having an actual conversation on an emotional level with another person that's beneficial for them because you've just given them a compassionate ear for them to offload what's bothering them 
and it's good for you because stress doesn't exist alongside empathy alongside compassion just doesn't so you've given yourself a little break from those hormones the stress hormones in your body that might be causing you hassle so there you go so that's how I try and manage it (laughs) also what has been a great uh, help for reduction in stress for me this week I noticed out out my my back garden right so as you know listening to the podcast recently you know I'm taking a big interest in biodiversity you know for the interest of the climate Um, just doing what I can with the space that I have to in particular make life easier for insects butterflies bees ants whatever the fuck trying to use the space that I have to create a little environment where they can thrive whether it be planting wildflower um creating simple little stagnant ponds where you can have you know little what what do you call them dragonfly larvae and midges and all these things because they're you know I live in a city so their habitat is gone but I use the space that I can it's in the pots then what did I call the podcast a couple of podcasts back Chucky Garlon I spoke about this but anyway so I've done these things I've got wildflower I'm not cutting the lawn um, I've got a bee hotel that I bought in a hardware shop which is just a little it's like a box with pine cones in it and shit and bees and insects can live in there all these little things and full of insects out the back but the most interesting thing that's happened in the past week and and it's fantastic so I had a bag of compost right and as you know I've got two wild cats kind of stray cats out the back garden the brother and sister Napper Tandy and what's his fucking name a white fella I can't remember his fucking name because that's the thing Napper Tandy is his sister and his name is Silken Thomas that's that's his name Um, I forget their names because they're stray wild cats so I don't go around calling them Silken Thomas or Napper Tandy those are names that exist exclusively in my own head because a feral cat they don't respond to you like domestic cats do like they'll never you can't call them they, they they don't respond e- even if you bang their dish on the ground for food they don't even seem to respond to that there's no domestication whatsoever they're fu- fully wild so they're never going to respond to a name they don't respond to vocalizations eye contact is the only thing really they they don't meow a wild cat will never meow at you meowing is something that kittens do exclusively to vocalise to their mother and domesticated cats continue meowing because to domesticate them keeps them in an extended state of kittenhood so these cats don't meow what's his face Silken Thomas the tomcat now he's completely white and I believe he's deaf I do think he's deaf because white cats are often deaf and he's incredibly loud now he doesn't meow at me but at night time 
because you heard him. He just he fucking. I was recording a podcast here a couple of months ago. He was out in the alleyway roaring like screaming, but he's really really loud when he's out on his own, searching for mates or whatever he's doing. So I think he might be deaf. But yeah, that's the thing with uh, with feral cats. You, there's no response from him. You can have eye contact. There's there's still there's a connection. There's a familiarity. There's a sense of they know I'm helping them. They know I'm their friend. But I'll never be able to touch them. Always three feet of distance at all times. You know, never. Like even once, I was feeding the napper Tandy, and she was eating out of a bowl, and I'm allowed quite close to her. So I put my hand down for the laugh to gently touch her head and she hissed. So she had no context whatsoever for any type of touch. But anyway, so this is what's after happening this week, which I found very useful in terms of dealing with stress and being mindful. So there's a bag of compost that I have out the back and this bag of compost happens to be directly behind where these two cats live in this little hut that I have for them. And what I've no what's happened in the past week, which is class, so the two cats I just had the compost there. I was gonna open it at some point. But the two cats use the compost occasionally as a scratching post. Uh, and they they lie on it as well to bask in the sun. So there were two slits on either side of the compost that the cats had put there. And I noticed this week bees flying in and out of the compost now I kind of I'm freaking out a bit because I'm going shit am I going to be dealing with a beehive I could do without that I don't want what I was concerned was are, are these bees that are coming in and out of either slit of the compost are they trying to find a hive and I'm going to be dealing with a swarm because in Limerick last week there was a swarm of bees in a cafe Um. Someone got it on video. I don't know what happened. There was some ivy outside a cafe. And then there was like a thousand bees. And it caused a bit of panic. So I was thinking. Fuck me. I could do without a swarm of bees now. In this bag of compost. Which is directly behind. Where the two cats are sleeping. Because. They're mad bastards. They started attacking the bees. And all of a sudden. Now I'm dealing with a swarm of bees. And two cats. Could do without that. That that would be a busy week. So. I took a video. Of the bees that were going in and out. Of the compost bag what I noticed when I was taking the video is that each bee was carrying big lumps of leaves they had green leaves each that were nearly the same size as them that they were taking in and out of the ba- of the compost so I took a video of it and I sent it to Kali Ennis who was a guest in this podcast he is an expert in insects up in Trinity College Dublin so Kali says to me, there'd be no fear of a swarm. Those bees are solitary Irish leafcutter bees, which are in danger. There's not a lot around. We've got like 16 solitary bee species in Ireland, but you don't see a lot of them anymore because they don't have swarms. They're not, they're not part of a colony. It's, they're solitary. It's them on their own. They're exclusive bees or reclusive. So what these bees are interested in Firstly, I don't know what why, but they tend to require a lot of heat. So they like to kind of bask a bit. You'll often see a solitary bee on a, on a flower and they're looking for sun to warm up before they fly off. So solitary bees make their homes in 
usually logs or trees that are south facing because south facing gets the best um, sun for them to warm up. So this bag of compost is south facing, right? And they think that it's a tree or a trunk because compost, it's compost that I have anyway, it's, it's not peat compost, it's like bark and or- organic material. So they think it's a trunk of a tree. They each have their own slit that they go in and out of and they're cutting leaves off, off uh, plants, bringing them there. And here's what's mad. So there was two slits on either side of the bag, open. Each little bee had closed the slits using leaves and spit or whatever and had managed to close the slits so it's just little entrances for each of them. But what they're doing inside, they're laying larvae. So they're going to have little baby solitary bees coming out of there, I don't know, in, in August maybe or something. But now this is a new... It's a new task I have. So, here's the concern, right? So I asked Collie, I I can't move. So the cats, they often lie on top of this bag of compost. They scratch it. And now there's baby bees inside there. So I want to get the compost, the bag, and I want to move it away from the cats. But I can't fucking do that because, think of it, if a little solitary bee is after laying a lot of babies in there, like, it'd be pure easy for me to crush that, because compost is, is, uh, it's not solid, like, so if I move that bag, that could disturb it and kill those babies, so I can't really move the fucking bag, the cats are still acting the prick with the bag, sleeping on it, pissing on it, so what I now have to do is, I got the idea from watching Chernobyl, so in, in Chernobyl, when the reactor went off, they covered the reactor in concrete, right? But then they have this dome over the reactor made of concrete. So then I was thinking, I need to make like a chicken wire or a mesh dome around the bag of compost that keeps the two fucking cats away, but allows the bees, the two solitary leafcutter bees, to travel freely within the mesh and to attend to their babies. So, that's kind of what the crack is, but what brought me onto it is that act of just the half hour where I'm looking at the compost and trying to figure out what can I do, how can I help them. That's an act of empathy and compassion. It's not empathy and compassion for another human, but I'm putting myself into the shoes of the two cats I'm putting myself into the shoes of the two fucking solitary bees. I'm trying to use empathy to see what their lived experience is. Ultimately, with both of them, they just want to fucking survive. The cats, they have their bed, they have their food, they have their water, they're happy. But they also like to scratch a bag of compost and lie on top of it. That's their needs. The two bees, their needs is to have, you know, they have now decided upon, here is a south-facing bark of tr- a bark of a tree... And that's where their babies are going to be. So the act of um, creativity and thinking about and empathy that I had to do to think of, right, I'm going to put a mesh around it. That very act was a a mindful act of, it de-stressed me basically. It removed all stress. You can't 
be worrying about your own shit. You can't be worrying about deadlines. You're not concerned about anything. When you're completely and utterly devoting your attention to the helping or the survival of something else or the well-being or listening to the needs of another person or creature. So there you go. That's my week. I've got a hot take for you this week. Okay, I've got a a fun, interesting hot take. Something that I wanted to talk about for a while. Before I get into the hot take, we'll have an ocarina pause, will we? Um, the ocarina pause. There might be an advert, and I don't want it to shock you. So I'm going to play my Spanish clay whistle. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash blind boy. So that was the ocarina pause. May have heard an advert. So anyway, also as well, this podcast is uh, supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if you listen to the podcast if you take something from it if you enjoy it um, you know you can listen for free if you want or you could give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month by going to the Patreon page and becoming a patron of the podcast this is what keeps me going this is what pays my bills this is my regular source of income it's fucking life changing it's why there's a podcast each week so if you are so inclined, please consider it. And I'm very grateful to everyone who's a patron of the podcast. Thank you so much. 
Um, also as well, look, if you're using the the app on your iPhone, the podcast app on your iPhone, go in there, leave a review, leave a rating. Always important. Subscribe. Subscribe on fucking Spotify, Acast. And tell a friend about the podcast. If a friend says, you know, I want to listen to podcasts, recommend this one. These are all positive things you can do if you enjoy the podcast. So anyway, this week's hot take. So, I suppose what it's, what it is, is what the hot take is. I'm thinking about the notion of, of celebrity, you know, massive, massive celebrity today. And if you were to say to a lot of people, you know, who who's the most famous person in the world, celebrity-wise, a lot of people would say Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, you know. There's other people who are comparably as famous, but that's something that jumps forward. Not just because we'll say Kim or Kylie are so famous, but what makes them interesting is the nature of their fame. They're not, like Beyonce is as famous, if not more famous than Kim Kardashian, but it's like Beyonce is an artist. She creates things. She's a performer, a singer. Um, Lady Gaga, the same. You know, they're artists. We're comfortable with that idea of fame because you go, well, there's a thing that they that they do and a thing that they produce, you know, uh, art as such, and people enjoy it, and that's why they are famous. The Kardashians are different because they're as famous as Lady Gaga or as famous as Rihanna or Beyonce, but they don't create art they know that they're not their their fame is as a result they're they're famous for being famous that's their thing they're they're walking talking brands they're brands that exist do you know and they're divisive I I don't look some people have huge issue with some people have huge issue with the Kardashians. I some critique is just straight up fucking misogynism. Fuck that. Other critique is, you know, how they might culturally appropriate things like that. But th- what there's no denying is that, like Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, very very famous people who have a huge impact on culture, huge influence, and they mean a lot to a lot of people. So these these are facts. Whether you like the Kardashians or you don't like them, these are simple facts. Um, and you kind of, you know, you kind of wonder, Jesus, you know, does that fame that they have, can that only exist now because of reality TV, because of social media? Does that only exist now? This, I suppose you'd call it influencer. They're a little bit too big to be influencers, but when someone is famous for kind of being famous because of an Instagram account or something like that, we call these people influencers. They're people who, they just exist and they're famous and that's it and we don't really question it and that's culture in 2019. Look, I don't mind it. I'm not going to 
be getting bothered about these things. Um, as I get older, I really chill out about this shit. I, I'm, I'm not gonna get upset about what someone else enjoys. Like I say before, if if my if if I can boil my critique of something down to saying to another person, stop having fun in a way that's different to how I have fun. If if I if I have a critique and I boil it down to that, then I need to have a think about that position. Do you get me? So I'm into music, I'm into art, that's what I'm interested in. And if someone else, if their way of enjoying life is to follow one of the Kardashians and to take meaning from it, and if that helps them, then that person's right. And I'm not right if I don't like that. I'm right for me because I like music. They're right for them because they like the Kardashians. And that's just the way things are. And I find myself a much, much happier person. When I take on that position. Um, When I was younger my position would have been. Stop having fun. In a way that's different to how I have fun. Fuck that. It used to be like that. Like I don't get sports. I don't understand sports. I don't have that gift. I really don't have the gift. I used to get annoyed when I was younger. At lads who liked soccer. Like how the fuck does that affect my life. If someone enjoys soccer. And it brings them happiness. That person is 100% right. Do you get me? But anyway. I suppose the hot take is. Wondering about like. Who who was the Kim Kardashian 100 years ago? Do you know? Or was that even possible? And. There's someone I've wanted to speak about on this podcast a long time. An Irish historical figure who I <clears throat> I just find really fucking fascinating because again it's you know it's like the Kardashians I don't know don't know what my position is on them I just find this person incredibly fascinating because they're a huge anomaly of their time it's like they don't they don't make sense and they don't fit in with their time that they existed so the person I'm speaking about is it's an Irish woman. So Kim Kardashian, what what was a hundred years ago? Hundred years ago was nineteen nineteen. No, farther back, lads. Nearly two hundred years ago. So the equivalent of Kim Kardashian two hundred years ago, someone with that comparable level of fame, that's kind of inexplainable and very difficult to put them into one particular box. It was an Irish woman. Um, an Irish woman whose name was Eliza Gilbert, born in 1921. Now, she's a contentious kind of figure within history in that to find out what's true about her is difficult because you have people who've genuinely attempted to get a true biography of her you have Eliza Gilbert herself, <coughs> who's written and published her biography in the 1860s, I believe. Um, but she was quite fantastical in how she described herself. And then you have very strong critique of her. So there's three kind of separate biographies and you're wondering, 
which one is true how much of her story that she tells herself is true how much of you know serious biographers is true and how much is true of the people who are critical of her she was born so here's the thing with Eliza Gilbert she comes from a family known as the Olivers the in County Limerick in Kilmallock there's Castle Oliver which was built in the 1600s okay now when Castle Oliver was built in the 1600s there was a fella Robert Oliver who would be this Eliza Gilbert's grandfather or great grandfather so who Robert Oliver was and who Castle Oliver in Limerick was named after he would have been one of Oliver Cromwell's soldiers now I've mentioned Cromwell on the podcast before Cromwell is Ireland's Hitler Cromwell was a Protestant religious fanatic comparable to ISIS who committed mass, mass murder and genocide on the Irish people on behalf of the English crown and also enacted colonisation and plantations in Ireland where the Irish Catholics were murdered, sent to penal colonies sent to fucking Barbados, whatever you have it, the Irish were, there was an attempt at ethnic cleansing on the native Irish on the ha- by the hands of, of Oliver Cromwell um, acting in service of the crown. And the Irish were removed and in their place, Protestant settlers were placed. So you, you know, first off, get rid of any native Irish aristocracy, they're gone, you're left with a peasant class, murder the peasants, kick them off their land, take the land, and give huge landed estates to English and Scottish planters to ethnically cleanse the population of Ireland, basically. So this guy, Robert Oliver, in the 1600s, was a soldier of Oliver Cromwell's, and he was given a huge amount of land, and he built Castle Oliver, and they would have been what would become what's known as the Protestant ascendancy, the Protestant ascendancy being this ruling class in Ireland that created mass mass racism and inequality based on their English and Scottish blood their claim to the land and their Protestant religion right should we know this crack I'm just saying this for the I don't know the person listening who's from Peru now here's the bit that gets a little bit insane This is the bit in the Serial Killer podcast where the music stops and the host acts all shocked. But they're not really shocked because it's pre-written. Well, this bit here is real. If you're listening to this this particular bit bit right now, these words that are coming out of my mouth this second, this here is a segment that I have had to add after the podcast has gone out, which I never do because it's it's very finicky and it can fuck things up but I, I had to do this so this podcast went out live on the morning of July 16th and then I found out something after the podcast went out a giant glaring fact that I was unaware of and for me this fact is so insane it has left me a little bit shook so the podcast has already gone out I'm adding this bit now I spent a long time researching this woman, Eliza Gilbert, 
comparing her to Kim Kardashian. I have no reason to relate the two of them whatsoever other than they're they're quite similar. They're similar uh, people. Here's the thing. Castle Oliver, which I just mentioned there, Kim Kardashian had her fucking honeymoon there with Kanye West in 2014. Now, I was aware that Kim Kardashian... I knew Kim and Kanye had a honeymoon in Limerick in 2014. I wasn't really consciously aware that Castle Oliver is the place. So here's an insane fact that has actually connected up this entire podcast that I've completely missed. The hot take that I'm making where I'm connected to unrelated people across history actually have a very, very relevant and deep connection. I would love to think that Kim Kardashian was aware of Eliza Gilbert and actually chose Castle Oliver because of that. I don't know what this is. You know, sometimes I call it Jungian synchronicity. Most likely what it is, is deep in my unconscious mind from 2014, I did know that Castle Oliver was where Kim Kardashian had her honeymoon and that nugget of information stuck away in the depths of my unconscious mind, bubbled up without telling me and has connected Eliza Gilbert to Kim Kardashian. But this is going to bother me for the rest of the day. So getting back to the regular podcast now and the, the early life of... Eliza Gilbert but anyway Eliza Gilbert this is the woman I want to speak about born in 1821 she is her mother's name was Eliza Oliver and Eliza Oliver would have been a granddaughter of this fella Robert Oliver the Cromwell lad but Eliza Oliver was illegitimate She wa- so she wouldn't have been Eliza Oliver, Eliza Oliver would have been born in the 1700s, so she'd have been illegitimate, so there's that weird thing going on. So Eliza Gilbert, who I want to talk about, she used to say she was born in Limerick because of what that would have connoted. She was able to say, I'm of the Olivers, and I was born in Castle Oliver and Kilmallock, and I am posh, I am important. But she wasn't really. Her ma was illegitimate. She was born in, so Eliza Gilbert was born in Sligo in 1821. And I'm going to go on now and give you my hot take as to why this Eliza Gilbert, descendant of Cromwell's planters, why she became the Kim Kardashian of her time. That famous, that influential, that controversial. So she'd have had a queer enough childhood because, you know, born in Sligo, but born to, of noble blood, but not being able to claim any of it or to say it because her mother was illegitimate. So her ma married some British soldier. That's how Eliza was born. When Eliza was quite young, she would have been, they moved to India when she was about six years of age. Her real father died of cholera pretty much as soon as they got to India. When Eliza then was about five or six years of age, her ma sent her to England to 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 study in school as a young one. Now Eliza, she's from Sligo, like she's born in Sligo. I don't, I doubt, highly doubt she would have identified as Irish. At this point, we're in the 1830s. 
she comes from Protestant ascendancy family, she would not be calling herself Irish. She she's you know, coming from people who were put here by Cromwell. So Eliza at a young age, even when she goes to England to school, she really sets herself apart from the other students. She she was in quite eccentric. She liked to stand out. Um reports are that like she would have been considered very different looking. She she was dark skinned in the way Irish people weren't. She would have been considered very, very uh, kind of pretty as a child. Also, when she went to England to be schooled, a lot of people noted that she used to dress in a really peculiar fashion. She would dress very, very differently. She'd often run around the place naked just for attention. Uh, so she really stood out. Regarding her dress sense, no one knows. There, There's reports basically of like her schoolmaster and shit saying she just dressed really strange. Most likely, what it was is that she'd spent time in India. She was probably dressing the way they would have dressed in India. And this was not seen from white people in England in 1830. When she was 14, her mother tried to marry her off to a fella back in India. Eliza herself said, what was it? She tried to marry me to a, a a gouty old man of 60 so Eliza said fuck that she was 14 like so when she was 16 she didn't go to India to marry this old fella and she ran off with some British soldier who was her own age Um, what makes Eliza so interesting and this is you have to look at this in the context of the time so in like 1841 1842 she would have been 21 22 she leaves this fella that she married. She just goes, fuck that, I'm gone. And then she moves to Spain, right? She moves to Spain on her own. What makes her so interesting is... Like, women in eighteen in the 1820s would have had very little fucking agency. Very little independence agency. Women were married at a young age and then they just had kids and they lived very domestic lives women did not work women did, were not independent unless the woman was really high up fucking nobility a queen or a princess but Eliza really sets herself apart as being this real free spirit who's like fuck that I'm doing whatever the fuck I want so she pisses off to Spain in 1821 and she learns Spanish folk dancing right Spends about six months there learning Spanish folk dancing. And then in 1843, she goes to London, right? Now at this point when she's in London, she would never have identified as Irish. But she no longer calls herself Eliza Gilbert anyway. She arrives in London in 1843, dressed in like Spanish flamenco clothes. And she calls herself Lola Montes. So this is, she's famous now as, known as someone as Lola Montes. That's the name she invented for herself. She invented a whole backstory about being descended from Spanish nobility. She claims that she is Spanish. She learned a bit of Spanish when she was in Spain. And she's also already dark haired. And by all accounts at the time, she was just our total ride. Like everyone who saw her just said, 
this woman is ridiculous in every single respect. Her face, her body, everything, everyone was enamoured with her. So Lola Montez, originally born in Sligo, is in London claiming to be this Spanish fucking princess. Um, speaking the odd Spanish words, she's got the dark looks. She's doing well for herself. And she sets herself up as a Spanish dancer in various clubs, right? So when Lola Montez is in London, she quickly becomes incredibly famous as a dancer because when she was in Spain, she trained in a type of flamenco and now by all accounts, she wasn't a good dancer. Everyone who went to it said that she was shit at dancing and that she had very little rhythm and people started to kind of tell that she was a bit of a spoofer. But here's the thing. There's a traditional Spanish flamenco dance. It's also present in parts of Italy. It's a folk dance. And it's known as the Tarantella dance. Which the name comes from spider. It's a type of wolf. It was related to a wolf spider in Spain. But basically the person would dance as if there was a spider somewhere in the body. On their body and they were trying to find it. Okay. So this for me is where the Kim Kardashian comparison comes in. Kim Kardashian became incredibly famous at the start of her career because she recorded a a sex tape of her and her boyfriend leaked but Kim basically like released it herself and I think her mother Chris uh, Jenner shopped it around so Kim released a, a, a sex tape and this made her incredibly famous very quickly Lola Montez in 18 the 18 fucking was it the 40s Lola Montez in the 1840s, lads. She was dancing in London. And this spider dance, I'd re- or this Tarantella dance that I'd mentioned, she started doing a version of it, which became known in London as the spider dance. And all the men in London would turn up to see Lola Montez with this spider dance. And what the spider dance was, is that Lola would be up on stage. All the men would be like, oh my God, she's unreal. She's gorgeous. Look at her. And she'd do this dance where she's searching for a spider on her body in this flamenco costume. And then finally, she would look for the spider under her dress and she'd lift the dress up and she wouldn't be wearing any knickers and everyone would see. Now, this is the fucking 1840s, right? This is pre-Victorian, I think. Or is that the Victorian era? I'm not sure, but it's the 1840s, lads. Women didn't show their ankles, right? There was no skin. And Lola Montez in London is like, fuck that. If they're turning up, if they're paying me money, if me lifting up my skirt is going to pack this place out the whole time and get me this famous and this much attention, fuck that, I'm doing it. And she did it. Eliza Gilbert from Sligo, pretending to be the Spanish noble Lola Montez. But uh, sure, they got wide to it anyway. In, in, in England after a while, you know, she would have become... The equivalent of the tabloids at the time, she did this dance, it would have been all over the papers, everyone went to see it, and then someone figured, hold on, something's up here. Her Spanish isn't right. Her accent isn't right. Her dance isn't right. Something's off. She's not really Spanish. And she was exposed, so she had to flee London as everyone was like, they turned against her. The scandal of it, uh, what they saw as the deception, so she fled London. But as she's fleeing London, like, she became famous not only in the tabloids of London, but kind of bits and pieces around Europe, 
with like her photograph appearing in the papers. And this this is where she kind of gets she gets known as, as as what's called a courtesan. A courtesan is what would it be? It it was a word an old school word from like kings used to have courts, right? And a king's court was like I don't know, it it was there it was where the king lived. And if the royal court, right, it would have contained the king's servants, nobles, artists, entertainers, anyone who had the grace of a monarch would have had kind of special attention and protection and privileges. And a court a courtesan was an educated kind of posh girl. I'm sure there was lads as well actually, although it'd be, it'd be there would have been men too, obviously, but that's not as highly uh, remembered in history because the stigma about people being gay was so extreme. So I'm sure there was male courtesans too, of course there was. But female courtesans were women who were kind of educated and charming and had a lot of etiquette and they would use these things to get close to a nobleman or a king or a prince and then essentially become their mistresses and from this they would achieve a certain degree of power and wealth and protection that would have been because there wasn't a lot of available to women so she becomes known as a courtesan at this point because this fella called King no what is it Prince Heinrich of Leipzig in Germany right he'd, he'd read about her in the paper and fallen for her because of her photograph invited her over and she became his mistress then right um, so she's now the mistress of a royal German fella and getting the kind of the money and privileges that go with it. She's been looked after now. Um, he soon gets tired of her because she, what really sets her sets her out at this time is like she, she was unruly. Like she would very much place herself in this courtesan position as a way to survive but she was incredibly outspoken highly intelligent and the reports at the time is that like she would place herself close to powerful men like obviously there would be a physical dimension to the relationship but she'd have no issue telling a king to fuck off and she mainly wanted to speak about politics she'd really really strong radical kind of political opinions for the time and she would speak about politics with with men in a way that women were not permitted to speak at the time uh so this leipzig prince of leipzig fella was just like fuck this this one's too hot for me no way so after this 1843 she heads, she heads off to warsaw in poland now poland at the time was being occupied by the russians and this is where this is where lola really starts to become like a a real troublemaker, a proper political troublemaker. Um, so she, whatever happened, she was dancing in a theatre in Warsaw and she had the grace of some fucking royal there or whatever. But the chief of police, right, um, he didn't like her. Something about her, he didn't like her. So when she was doing a performance, the chief of police got a bunch of like he put kind of fake people in the audience to deliberately boo her 
but she also had a huge amount of supporters because she's getting a massive amount of fame around Europe for her this fucking spider dance where everyone now in Poland is going we, not, we need, need to see Lola Montez dancing because she's going to pull up her skirt so everyone's waiting for that she's got a huge amount of supporters so when the people start booing this causes a fucking riot in the theatre and then Lola gets up on stage and she says this riot was organised by the chief of police the chief of police is organising this riot because he tried to fuck me and I wouldn't let him and her supporters then rally around her and it stops being about Lola and whatever she said about the chief of police and she becomes a symbol of resistance and there's a riot starts and the riot is Lola becomes a symbol to riot against the Russian occupation in Poland so she starts real fucking shit there now she could start a revolution so after this now her celebrity stops kind of being exclusively about this spider dance and it becomes about here's someone who, who can cause fucking riots here's this really divisive celebrity with strong followers and she's now getting involved in political shit but the beauty of it is so Lola kind of just gets bored of it and goes fuck fuck Poland I'm not interested in this anymore she has a gig up in Russia in St. Petersburg she has a crack at it but because of the anti-Russian riot that started in Poland she gets a shit reception in St. Petersburg but what she has which makes her really fucking unique as a woman at the time. She has a sense of autonomy and agency. She's self-employed. She's doing these gigs. She's getting paid for them. She's working for herself in a social and political climate where women didn't really have jobs. There were female entertainers, ballet and shit like that, but they were paid less than minimum wage. It was. It was they were kind of like... Female performers at the time, it was just a way for them to gain notoriety so they could meet a wealthy man. Whereas Lola's now earning her own money, she's still obviously using powerful men as a way to help her own career. But while she's in St. Petersburg, she opens a newspaper, she reads about the classical composer Franz Liszt. And she sees that Liszt is massively successful all over Europe doing tours. So she says, fuck that, I'm going to find Franz Liszt and I'm going to go out with him. So she tracks down Franz Liszt, manages to seduce him. And then she's Franz Liszt's girlfriend for a while. So through Liszt she manages to meet the composer Wagner. Um, Wagner is... Wagner fucking hated her. Really didn't like her. She didn't have a romantic involvement with him nor did she seem to be interested but Wagner really didn't like her. Wagner is... He's the guy that Hitler likes. He Wagner... The Nazis were a huge fan of Wagner's music to the point that even today Wagner's stuff is a bit problematic. Um, especially amongst Jewish people because of what he represented to the Nazis but she starts kind of writing her own plays she realises wow I'm getting a huge name for myself Um, dancing only pays so much how about I write my own plays and put them on and star in some of them too and she does and they start selling out and the only way to really describe her at the time is hugely controversial. Everywhere she went, she was all over the papers with people either utterly hating her or loving her. Because here she is, like, defying every single expectation of what women were supposed to be at the time. 
taking complete ownership of her sexuality, getting up on stage, dancing, going, yeah, I'm gonna, I, if I'm gonna show off, I'm gonna lift my skirt up if I want to do that. Completely un- unapologetic about her beauty, about her figure. Very much what we would now call empowering, taking ownership, anti-slut shaming, all of this stuff. She appeared to be doing it at the time, but was really hated for it. She heads off to Paris, and she f- she in Paris, she doesn't do so well as a performer, but what she finds in Paris are the bohemian crowd. So Paris at the time would have had a kind of a just an inner circle of artists and writers and performers who were very liberal thinking, forward thinking, and bohemians, you know, they would have been the original, what we would now call hipsters. So she becomes friends with uh, your man, Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Count of Monte Cristo and wrote Three Musketeers. And bizarrely then, from whatever, she displayed this unbelievable ability to, ability to shoot pistols. So I think she was on stage showing off how good she was with guns for a while. Dumas said... Uh, she is fatal to any man who dares to love her. So we don't know whether she had a fling with Dumas or not, but she's in France now shooting pistols. When she was in Paris, she she met a fella she actually really loved. He was the editor of some like hipster newspaper. It would be the, it'd be the equivalent of finding some fella who's, I don't know, the editor of fucking Vice or Dazed and Confused today, but he was like a bohemian and she seemed to really actually fall in love with this fella some shit happened anyway I don't know what it was your man ended up in an argument with another man about Lola the other fella had sent some, said some shit about her so her fella the editor to defend her honour challenged your man to a duel kind of regretted it the duel went ahead the other fella was a better shot so now her boyfriend shot dead in a duel which broke her heart because she that was the one fella she really gave a fuck about and that she loved. Who was the editor of this newspaper, this bohemian Parisian fella. And he's dead now. So that, that really, that seemed to have bothered her deeply. So she spends the next few years, or sorry, the next few months or whatever, farting around Europe, doing her thing, doing her dances, putting on shows. And eventually kind of settles in Germany. And the king, was he the king of Bavaria? Ludwig fucking something King Ludwig of Bavaria now he was an old fella he was about 60 but he had this mad fetish for everything fucking Spanish Spanish women now even though Lola wasn't fucking Spanish from Sligo or from Limerick born in Sligo he doesn't seem to give a shit and apparently when she met Ludwig for the first time like, she went out of her way. To, she she heard that he fancied her, you know, and she's like, fuck it, I'm going to bag a king. So, when Ludwig meets her for the first time, he's 60-something years of age, first thing he says to her is basically, are your tits real? Um, Which I found strange, because I didn't know they had fake boobs back then, but maybe it meant padding or whatever, but apparently that's the first thing he said to her, the king, are they real? And she was wearing, like, a her Spanish dress with the corset and she used to dress in a way that like her breasts would be kind of out there you know that was part of her costume and when he said to her are they real she took a knife out of her pocket 
and rip the dress open and just show them to him there, there and then. And at that moment, boom, that was it. He was ensnared. And this is most definitely her most famous... Like, she was hated in Bavaria by the people. She was really seen as this radical, scandalous, perverted woman who was after... She would have been seen as a witch who was after putting a spell on the poor old king of Bavaria in his 60s and this poor old man didn't know what he was doing and he was entranced by this evil, politically radical, sexualized woman. The Irish woman who pretended she was Spanish. And he gave her a title. He made her fucking... A countess or some shit like that. So now she had a proper fucking royal title in Bavaria. And it upset a lot of people. Now the thing with the Ludwig, the king, he was so entranced with her that the more opposition that the public had towards her, the more he would take it personally and defend her. And she gained quite a lot of fucking power in Bavaria. Almost the power that a queen would have, even though he was, she was a courtesan, she was his mistress. This is where... This is the bit that I love, because this is where the fucking... That Cromwell blood comes out, you know? Like I mentioned at the start, like... Lola, or Eliza, her original name... She comes from... You know, still illegitimately, but it's it's the Oliver family. It's the family that were planted in Ireland as Protestant planters to eradicate Catholics. She does not identify as an Irish Catholic. She comes from a family who would have hated Catholics. A family whose very existence is there for the eradication and replacement of Catholics. So the thing with Bavaria at the time is the even though the she would have first off she'd have been posing as a Catholic because she's pretending she's Spanish uh, nobility so she would have been posing as a Catholic. The bureaucracy of Bavaria at the time Catholic Jesuits were really 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 fucking powerful. Right? Now Lola, uh, using her ingratiation to the king and her power, she starts making political moves in Bavaria, mainly quite liberal things, because she's got that Parisian bohemian revolutionary thing in her. So she starts doing things like uh, kind of social fairness, like starts enacting things whereby teachers start receiving better pay, public servants start receiving better pay. She starts to express... uh, a concern for the working and middle class of Bavaria, right? But also, because the Jesuits thought that she was Catholic, they tried to recruit her. So she starts this fucking feud with the Jesuits, this anti-Catholic thing, and this is, that's the Cromwell shit coming out in her. Like I said, she is from the Oliver family in fucking Ireland. They're planters. So she brings this radical anti-Catholicism to Bavaria, she's the king's fucking mistress and the most powerful bureaucrats in Bavaria are Catholics so in 1849 a bit of a revolution kind of kicks off in Bavaria now it's from the ground up it's coming from liberals who want to see kind of greater fairness in society who want to see the removal of this Jesuit bureaucracy kind of leading a particularly aristocratic and kind of controlling country and the kind of 
they they rally behind Lola. So the liberal uprising rallies behind Lola as a as a figurehead. And you've got this now, this fucking potential revolution ready to break out, and she's got all these supporters. The Jesuit Secret Service or whatever end up going to the king with a bunch of evidence about her. Just basically going, she is not who you think she is. She's not Spanish. She's none of this. Here she is in London. Here's all the shit she was doing. The king gets mad embarrassed and is kind of forced to strip her of her title and expel her from the country. But this huge revolution nearly kicks off where these massive riots and protesters are back in this Lola one. She becomes the figure and symbol of liberal reform within uh, Bavaria. It's crushed. It doesn't work out. But what that would have meant, if you think of Bavaria in the context of World War One, World War Two, what that would have meant for the history of the 20th century if Lola's supporters had successfully toppled, do you know? Toppled the fucking, the powers that be, the Jesuit powers that be. She fucks off to Switzerland then, not allowed in Bavaria. She farts around Europe for another bit, doing doing her shows, doing her thing. But by this time, she's the height of her fame. She's incredibly famous now worldwide as Lola Montez, the seducer of kings, the starter of revolutions, the spider dancer. This person who's challenging all preconceptions of what what gender is what a woman's role is you know she's the first ever woman to be photographed smoking a cigarette and if you remember the earlier podcast that I did where I spoke about the invention of advertising in the 1920s no the invention of propaganda in the 1920s and Sigmund Freud's nephew uh, the Swiss Edward Bernays in New York how he used in the 1920s the use of cigarettes in women's hands as a way to manipulate advertising in the 20s. Lola Montez was getting her photograph taken smoking fags in the 1840s, lads, knowing full well what that meant, how punk rock that was. Cigarettes were not for women, and she's going, fuck that, take my photo. So she pisses off now to New York, and what makes what makes this a bit different is... She doesn't. She's. She's. She doesn't need to chase power anymore. She. She's now Kim Kardashian levels of fame. She's standing on her own two feet. She's earning money. She's independent. She goes to New York and she gets on stage, not necessarily as as a burlesque dancer. She's Lola Montez, the fucking celebrity. The really, f- and she tells her story. So she writes a play about her own life. She arrives to fucking New York, lads, wearing... What was she wearing? She she was dressing in men's clothing, right? Like a pants, right? This is years before Coco Chanel started doing that shit in the 20s. So Lola's now wearing men's clothes. She's pistols on either of her side like a fucking cowboy. And she starts carrying around this massive bullwhip. This really, really long bullwhip. So she's... Just like, what fucking rules have you got and I'm going to break them? And she's up on stage now, with writing, this is where her biography comes from now, and you can, her biography, you can, you can get it online, you can read it. Her own biography is nuts. She made, you know, that's what I'm saying, she made up half of it. But she's up on stage with her plays, she'd do a bit of burlesque dancing, there's still a bit of that, but dressed as a man with pistols and a bullwhip. And she'd still do the odd burlesque 
dance up and down the west coast like she toured all over America she was hugely influential on what burlesque dancing was to become um, but what she started doing as well then with the fucking whip she would beat the fuck out of men in public with this whip so like if she was playing to a crowd and the lads were boozy and someone might chance coming up on stage she'd have this fucking six foot long whip and she'd beat the shit out of a man with the whip in the early 1850s she finds herself in San Francisco San Francisco would have been at the utter height now of uh, the start of its gold rush and you'll know a couple of weeks ago I was in San Francisco and I did a podcast from San Francisco and I'm kicking myself that because she opened up her own saloon in San Francisco when it would have been it would have been fucking wild like San Francisco would have been a rapidly expanding brand new town of just like I said it, it grew from 100 people to something like 400,000 in the space of a year I'm annoyed that she wasn't on my brain when I was in San Francisco and I didn't seek out some either where her saloon was or just some Lola Montez stuff do you know she ended up um, in San Francisco with some very public feud anyway with the editor of some newspaper and he was talking shit about her in the newspaper she was talking shit about him the equivalent of a modern Twitter feud you know except it was going back and forth in the newspaper so the editor would say shit Lola would say shit back and then one day she's in like it was either her own saloon I think it was her own saloon right I could be wrong with this but her own saloon I think the editor turns up either not knowing it's hers or whatever and she sees him and she fucking takes out her whip beats the shit out of the editor with her fucking whip and then he has a whip and he starts beating the shit out of her she's from fucking Sligo the gold rush chills out a bit in San Francisco so she goes right because she, she got fond of the gold rush type of crowd um, probably the wildness of it reminded her of the crack she was having in Paris with the bohemian crowd she goes right where's the next gold rush so she fucks off to Australia she ends up in Melbourne doing the same thing touring as this huge celebrity and performing shows that are about her life she did a play about it was called Lola Montez in B- Bavaria writing her own plays starring in them with this incredibly exaggerated version of the life that she lives again not too far off fucking the hot taker in me taking it back to Kim Kardashian Kim Kardashian the Kardashian reality show that's not their life. It's it's a version of their life for the entertainment of people who follow them. She was doing all that shit. Kim Kardashian's not taking out a fucking whip and beating the shit out of a newspaper editor, I can tell you that. So she ends up returning to America in her late 30s. And that's when she she becomes a fucking like a beauty influencer this this is the again this crazy the Kardashian I mean Kylie Jenner's thing is a fucking who's Kim's sister for anyone who doesn't know but selling beauty lines you know giving beauty advice beauty tutorials uh, selling makeup Lola in her late 30s when she gets back to America her shtick becomes about it becomes about a more female audience she her reputation is as this I suppose a feminist icon at the, a very empowered icon at the time but also hugely vilified because of the tastes at the time but she's 
seen as this incredibly beautiful, impossibly charismatic, seductive woman and women at the time want to be like her. So she starts doing shows about beauty. She releases books. You can still get them online. You know, look up Google Books. Lola Montez's books are there from the 1860s. One of them I was reading earlier. Secrets of the Woman's Toilet, it's called. And read, well able to fucking write as well, you know. Um, So that's what she did with, the, with kind of the end of her career. Becoming like a beauty influencer. Which I find amazing. Again, just because of the parallels of it with what a modern influencer is today. And she died kind of a sad enough lonely death. She died at 42. Or was it even... No, she was 39. She died at 39. In America. Kind of lonely. The people who buried her didn't even know her. She kind of... She got sick it would appear that what she had is is the starting signs of what what what's called tertiary syphilis, right? Now, syphilis, as you know, is a, it's a sexually transmitted disease. Doesn't really exist that much in the Western world anymore because it's it's easy to cure. But at the time, syphilis would have been fucking fatal. Tertiary syphilis is the third stage of syphilis. That was syphilis that. It wasn't far off leprosy. People with tertiary syphilis. It, it's Syphilis takes many years to form. It's a disease that came over from the fucking... Christopher Columbus brought it back in his ship from the Dominican Republic, I believe. But it, it made shit of Europe. And tertiary syphilis would have meant that... Had she not died from it... Like, your nose falls off, your face... you Massive deformities happen in humans that have tertiary syphilis... Genuinely, if, if if you're not squeamish, look up some photographs, old photographs of tertiary syphilis. People look like zombies. Their eyes fall out, all this shit. So that's how fucking Lola Montez died. And she's buried in New York, Eliza Gilbert. And look, that's all I can say about her. But I think she's fascinating, fucking fascinating. And I just think it is hugely phenomenally interesting that... This, the, you know, the, the, who was Kim Kardashian 200 years ago? Woman from Sligo. Or Limerick. Whatever you want, you know? And that's pretty class. So fair play, Lola. Alright, that's all I've got time for this week. 73 minutes. Yart. Have a good, um, have a good week. I hope you enjoyed that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 